0: The Jeb Bush campaign is shattering fundraising records. In the first half of the year, he has raised more than $114 million.
1: Jeb Bush, the $100 million man. At the beginning of his bid for president in summer 2015, a super PAC supporting the Florida governor announced that record haul, more than $100 million. Aides, speaking anonymously at the time, called it a shock-and-awe number for the group right-to-rise. They hoped it would send a strong message and establish Bush as the obvious Republican frontrunner. But another candidate was sending a different message.
0: Because I don't need anybody's money. It's nice. I don't need anybody's money. I'm using my own money. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second.
1: That was Donald Trump announcing his candidacy from Trump Tower in New York City, introducing what would become a central theme of his campaign: that he could not be bought while the other Republican candidates, and Jeb in particular, could be.:
0: These are highly sophisticated killers, and when they give five million dollars or two million or a million to Jeb, they have him just like a puppet. He'll do whatever they want. He is their puppet.
1: That was at the Iowa State Fair in August, and by February, at a Republican debate, Trump hadn't let up.
0: That's all of his donors and special interests out there.
1: (laughs) A few weeks later, Bush dropped out of the race after losing South Carolina. Right to Rise had spent nearly all of that initial $100 million and still lost. This is Trailhead, a podcast by Real Clear Politics. I'm Rebecca Berg, and in this series, we're exploring the quirky markers on the path to the nominating conventions through some of the standout moments in this year's primary process. Fundraising is a side to the presidential campaign that we hear a lot about, but rarely do we see it for ourselves. The money, millions of dollars worth, shows up as lines on Federal Election Commission reports. Later, we see it mostly in the form of advertising on television and radio, or by mail and phone. Meanwhile, the fundraisers, where candidates actually accumulate this cash, are closed off to the press and the public. Of particular fascination in recent elections have been super PACs, which can't coordinate with a candidate, but can raise and spend unlimited money. It was thought that in this election cycle, they would be more important and influential than ever before. But if anything, this primary season showcased the limits of big-dollar fundraising and super PACs, not their almighty power. And two candidates in particular turned the script on its head. Although Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump accepted what we call hard dollars, so normal campaign contributions subject to federal limits, They swore off super PACs and railed against a corruptible campaign finance system. But you will not find that I ever changed a view or a vote because of any donation that I ever received.
0: You know, there is a
1: reason why
0: these people are putting huge amounts of money into our political system. And in my view, it is undermining American democracy.
1: That message resonated. Sanders has given Hillary Clinton a run for her money, literally and figuratively. All told, he brought in more than $200 million through hard dollar fundraising alone, mostly online. His grassroots fundraising has been, to use the technical term, insane. And then you had candidates like Jeb Bush, who started the election cycle with roughly $100 million on the super PAC side and lost anyway. Instead of adding value, all that money ultimately might have been a liability. If one person knows this Riches to Rags story by heart, it's Charlie Spees, who was the attorney and treasurer for Right to Rise. At what stage uh, in this process did you personally come to the realization that Oh my gosh, this is going to be just a completely different dynamic than we predicted um and are really probably equipped to handle um from the super PAC perspective.
0: Probably late probably later than I should have.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's you know, when you're emotionally invested in a race and truly believe as I did that Governor Bush was best equipped to be president and was consistently improving as a candidate, I assumed that as voters focused, started paying attention to the race, that they would become more serious about the choices they were making.
1: Right to Rise was built as a political war machine of unprecedented size and scope. Whereas super PACs in the past had largely focused on attacking other candidates, like with Mitt Romney's Restore Our Future in 2012, this one would also help steer the campaign's positive messaging. And so one of Bush's top longtime lieutenants, Mike Murphy, was tapped to run the super PAC instead of taking a campaign role, as he might have done in previous elections.
0: Mike Murphy, who was the CEO of the super PAC, still is, technically, was very upfront about the fact that he didn't want the super PAC to just be a negative vehicle. He wanted it to be able to do positive advertising and really try to drive the messaging, uh, to support governor Bush. I think that was the right approach and made a lot of sense. But as that was getting planned out, what nobody got right, and anybody who says they did, I would challenge them to provide me any contemporaneous evidence, is the outside weight of a reality television star jumping in the race and being able to command as much free free media as he did, that the best laid strategies of campaigns and super PACs got totally overwhelmed by this Trump tsunami.
1: And when Spee says best laid plans, there really was a lot of planning and strategy that went into building right to rise. Bush deliberately did not announce his candidacy until last summer so that for months he could legally be involved in the development process and go around raising millions of dollars for the super PAC. Meanwhile, Bush's team was looking for ways to innovate and stretch the limits of super PAC potential
0: one of the innovations that we did with right to rise is we had what we called a governance advisory committee. And that was comprised of some really prominent major donors and political, you know, graveyards for lack of a better term as super PACs have raised more money. There has been concerns from major donors about how consultants are getting compensated and we wanted to make sure that because right to rise was set up to independently support, uh, governor Bush, that donors had confidence that the money was going to go towards lead on the target and that we were being held to the very highest standards of governance. So we put together this advisory committee of donors who overs- who took a look at all the contracts, how all compensation worked, and also uh, oversaw the budget. A potential donor said well, how you know how are people making money? Uh, how is money going to be spent? How do I make? How can I be sure this is all about board? We were able to say, go talk to one of these people on the governance committee. Uh, they don't have a dog in the hunt. You know, they're not making money. They're doing this as volunteers, and they're overseeing this to provide that sort of best independent best practices control.
1: As it turned out, giving more authority to the donors themselves was one of the really interesting trends among super PACs in this primary season. Ted Cruz actually had multiple super PACs supporting him, one each for a few big donors, ensuring that they would have maximum oversight of how their money was spent. One of those groups, though, ended up spending only $1 million of a pledged $10 million, purely because the donor didn't want to
0: presumably since that was publicly announced the campaign strategy was relying on that money being spent and the other super PACs knew that there was a group out there with that money to spend yet they ended up not spending it they only spent one of the of the 10 million dollars meaning you know I I think that has a really negative effect on everybody's strategy because if you're I don't know which piece they were supposed to be doing, whether it was TV or mail or data, you know, but whatever piece that everyone else thought they were spending $10 million on, they only spent a tenth of that. And so there was a big hole to fill.
1: Looking at this particular case study, Spies wouldn't advise a model that goes so far in giving power to donors as Cruises Superpack did.
0: The only reason it would make sense is if a donor said, the only way I'll give money is if I can have some control over it. But in general, you want to be as efficient as possible as you plot out how you're going to spend money. If you know that you've got $50 million or you're projecting a budget of $60 million to spend over a six-month period, you want to then be able to allocate that money both time-wise to different primaries and different states and also to different activities as efficient as possible and if you've got different people controlling different parts of the money that means you're not using it as efficiently as you can
1: it's easy to forget that the citizens united ruling gave rise to super PACs only about six years ago and people like Spees are still teasing out these questions about how to operate most efficiently within legal limits. Just a few decades ago, in fact, Spees was one of only a small number of people working in this sphere at all.
0: I in, was working at the Federal Election Commission in the late 1990s. I was counsel to the chairman, Daryl Wald, at that time. And I remember vividly, in you know the year 2000 if you said if i told someone i was an election lawyer nobody knew what the heck that meant it was really as a result of the recount and the publicity that that got from 2000 more people got interested in the whole field of political law and then you couple that with the increased regulation i think 20 years ago there were probably Five or six law firms that had political law legitimate political law practices. Now, on the national level, there's probably twenty or thirty. So there are you know there has been a huge growth uh, huge growth in this area of the law.
1: But nothing has elevated interest in campaign finance quite like super PACs or attracted such controversy. And in this primary, the donors were also not spared that spotlight, with Trump calling them out as killers and puppeteers.
0: I think those donors thought that was absolutely absurd. And the idea that they were going to pull the strings of Jeb Bush by giving money to a super PAC was just laughable.
2: <laughs>
0: Having said that, I think the person, I think right now we are seeing the effects of that rhetoric on Mr. Trump's attempts to now build a finance operation. You know, he spent the past year vilifying donors and saying that they were the only reason they gave is because they were corrupt and sleazy lobbyists and also that he was worth ten billion dollars. He was going to self fund and had no need for their money. Now that he's said that's all, you know, inoperative and in fact he does want money from people and you know he loves people that'll get money to him, I think it's hard for some of the donors to stomach. Some of the you know most prominent Republican donors I've heard saying, Yeah, I'll vote for Donald Trump over Hillary. Uh Hillary's the worst option is a worse option, but He said he was going to sell finance and let him do it. (laughs) We'll take him at his word. Go for it.
1: (laughs) How uh, widespread is this among donors?
0: I hear it frequently.
1: To appeal to these donors and bring in checks, a candidate or a super PAC needs a fundraising team. And this isn't just the Jeb Bushes of the world we're talking about. This is a consideration for presidential candidates of all stripes. So to learn more about how to raise money, I met with Caroline Wren. She's currently director of fundraising for the Republican convention in Cleveland. But before that, she raised money for Lindsey Graham's Super PAC in this Republican primary and for John Huntsman's campaign in 2012. We decided to grab lunch in Washington at Capitol Grill, a steakhouse and the site of so many congressional fundraisers. I thought it would be clever and thematic, but I was wrong. So,
2: I don't do any D.C. fundraising, so I've never been here for a fundraiser or anywhere. I don't know where those things go on. I've never been to Capitol Hill Club. I'm not a member. I would. I just don't like it. I don't enjoy it. Um, and and it's just it's a totally different world than like what I do. I mean,
1: so there's one misconception we can clear up about raising money in politics. Not all of it happens over steak.
2: Most of the fundraisers are doing people's houses, and usually actually like pretty nice houses and stuff, but it, that makes it a lot easier, like it's not, And and I'm like, do mine on the cheap. Like, I want to do some towels, and like, I would do beer and wine or whatever. I just do, I do not do the spend 10 grand to raise 30 grand game at all. I like refuse to spend money on fundraisers. I think it's like a poor uh, use of that donor's money. So if they do demand that, it's like, that's great, but. I would think that I would want every dollar, and penny to go to that candidate. So I try not to do sit-down meals ever because those just add cost. Um, and do them more as like receptions or coffees or things like that.
1: Renn got her start in campaign fundraising when she was just 20 years old, still in college, on John McCain's 2008 campaign. During that primary, she actually asked her parents for a ticket to New Hampshire as a Christmas present to begin volunteering. By summer, she was on the finance team.
2: We would get a ton of checks that would bounce or like be a wrong address or something wouldn't go. So I was wanted to like call all these people and be like, your check bounced, your credit card didn't work. Oh so gosh. it was like a good throw-in because it's the most awkward conversation i of 20 years old having called these people, being like, your credit card bounced for seventy-five thousand dollars. Like,
1: she was also responsible for tracking the campaign's bundler list, making sure that the correct donors got credit for the money they brought in. This is significant in political fundraising because. It determines who gets an ambassadorship if your candidate wins.
2: So then I was put in charge of it because I had no skin in the game. Like, I didn't care. I didn't know any of the donors, and I didn't know any of them. So like, I would come over and get like lobbied by all these donors of people being like, hey, uh, by the way, this, this contribution here is tied to 1147. I'd be like, OK. It was kind of an independent audit since I was in no one's camp on it.
1: Since then, Ren has worked on Senate races as well as the national ones I mentioned, so I asked her. What does it take to raise money for campaigns?
2: So I think you have to be extremely outgoing and be able to talk to anyone and really ask for anything. Like all all day, I'm no shame, no shame. I can call and confidence because you have to be able to sit in a room across from these billionaires and self-made million. I mean, these just unbelievably accomplished people and like ask them for things and be able to to sort of back it up and have your reasons. And I also think fundraising is much more policy-driven than people think it is. Um, and you, a good fundraiser like knows certain policy issues and knows how it'll affect things. It.
1: Much of this is about knowing what donors care about what issues. In 2008, for example, when McCain decided to support drilling in Anwar, Renn suggested the finance team call a list of donors focused on energy, many of whom had been holding out their support for McCain. The same applies on the super PAC side, but with a smaller universe of donors.
2: You're only talking about 200 people maybe. So for a lot of them, I like know what they're actually interested in. If they're in Jewish causes or like economic issues or they're very socially conservative or things like that. So an understanding of them um, is important as well so that you don't go to them with dumb projects or things that you know they won't want to fund.
1: So, who are these people that are giving hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to support presidential candidates? And why do they do it?
2: I'm, I have a theory that people give for three reasons. There's one that are just like the true believers who have been right at Maxine and are RNC their whole lives, and like are they watch Fox News every day, and they're just conservative and like love it, and they want to help the slate, so they do events for all the competitive Senate races each cycle, and they max NRS, the RNC. Then there's the Jews, my personal favorite, <laughs> who I love.
1: Wait, they're their own category? They're their
2: own category, totally, because <laughs> they do bipartisan fundraising. They fund, they'll they host every Republican that comes in or Democrat who's Just good on who their issues. Israel. Anyone who supports Israel. And then there's the ones where it's, like, business interest and business-related.
1: When candidates meet with these donors or prospective donors, Ren would usually brief them first who is the donor, what do they care about, any issues to avoid. But that can also depend on the candidate. And this wasn't a very useful exercise for Lindsey Graham, for example, when Wren worked for his re-election campaign before moving to his presidential super PAC.
2: So, you have a lot of history about the donor shape By the way, this person is very against X, so be aware of it. Or you're going in to meet with um, Merrill Lynch. Like, here are some, like, votes you did that aren't good that they might bring up so be careful here are some talking points about finding like a lot of these candidates and senators require this with Lindsay I didn't do briefing documents because it did not matter <laughs> like if Lindsay would walk into a meeting and I could brief him on that be like hey they're really mad at you because of X vote and other people would try and like dance right he would lead with it in the meeting and be like hey here's why you're wrong on this
1: that kind of access even if it's just a meeting is one of the reasons the anti big donor messages of Trump and Sanders have so hit a nerve if donors are given special access to the candidates, what's to stop them from also getting favors or preferential treatment down the line? Wren has not seen much of that in her work, but she did tell me about one instance in which a Graham donor did call in a favor, but it's not exactly what you would think.
2: So yeah, you it's know, so a woman who's been a longtime donor and supporter of Senator Graham's and and she was in Canada, I believe. I can't remember if she brought this exotic bird with her or if she got it over there. But she like collects birds, and so she was coming back over the border and called Lindsay like in a panic, or called our office because they wouldn't let her back over with like bring the bird in. And so like our office like had to call all these immigration or whatever, and the Canadian officials, and like get the bird through. So that's the type of favors I see. It's not because she's a donor or anything like that. Like she's a constituent, we know her, but it's just like amazing requests like that are what I see.
1: Recently, the donors themselves have become a source of fascination and controversy. Names like Koch and Steyer have become a part of the political conversation. In the Republican primary, reporters tried to read the tea leaves to discern who Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnate and Republican donor, might support.
2: Repeatedly, he said, I'm not going to back anyone in the primary. And he never backed anyone in the primary. And I I swear I saw nine stories of, like, breaking news, Sheldon's going to give money to X candidate. And people go, I'm like, no, he's not. Oh, well, I heard it from this person. I'm like, great, write the story. Like, write it again in a month, then again in a month, then again in a month.
1: So what is what is behind that, and why does it why does any one donor matter that much? I
2: don't. I have. I think the press is fixated on those two, and I don't really get it. And like
1: they just become these fascinating characters. Yeah, and so what they actually are.
2: I, yeah, no, and I love both. They both do wonderful things and do help fund the party in a way that a lot of people do. But yeah, the fix, the obsession with them is like, I don't even understand it. If she did decide to play, it wasn't that person's not then going to be the nominee. Like that's how it's treated in the press almost. So it's just kind of strange to me.
1: The bigger questions for a finance team, as it turns out, are the much less exciting ones, like figuring out if they're bringing in enough money to meet payroll, or whether they can afford the time and the money to fly to California for a fundraiser.
2: Fundraising is 50% scheduling, 50% fundraising. Half the time I'm trying to figure out, can I get them to the city in time to do an event in this location, and like map questioning.
1: This is one thing, by the way, that Donald Trump never had to worry about in the primary because he has private jets. But for a candidate without money and without access to private jets, the early primary schedule isn't very conducive to actually raising the money to compete.
2: Well, that's, that's one of the hard things in presidential. presidential. It's like yeah. Iowa, New Hampshire, the first, yeah. and yeah. South Carolina. Well, those are what I call like tier three fundraising states. There's no fundraising to do in those three states, and you shouldn't, shouldn't be asking people for money in those states anyway, because right. right. you want so their the vote instead. The um, they think they should be able right. to talk to
1: you and hang out with you for yes. free.
2: And I was in proximity to nothing, at least. New Hampshire, we probably did like 25 Boston fundraisers and started just doing it for like $10,000 because that's only, so yeah, we were going so much because, and we would fly into Boston and go pick up 10 or 15,000, and then you go into New. Hampshire um, yeah. but everyone's doing that so like all the boss yeah. people Just were like stop it
1: and so the candidates take time out of their campaign schedules to fly elsewhere for fundraisers and deciding where to go and when really comes down to simple math. Yeah, I
2: Huntsman and Lindsey like we'll do one-on-one meetings or go do eventually pick up $10,000 or like go in someone's house versus if you remember the beginning when Jeb was the front runner. Like he would do it, doing hundred k plus events, and you couldn't even go to it unless you paid a hundred thousand. And like, I mean, that was never gonna happen for us. I wouldn't take Lindsay places unless it was at fifty thousand. So if I could piece together, so if, say I identified a host in Denver, and I thought the host could maybe do like twenty five to thirty thousand. It's why it's important to know them. I'm like, no, what they say. But then I could, you know, put together a meeting with like some a uh, group of Orthodox. Um, Jewish community that I know that can maybe put together 10 and then do two meetings that I think would do 2,700 and like piece together that 50, that, and then I'd be like, all right, we're locked and ready to go to that city. But with a yeah, top tier candidate, with Jeb, the, I heard that it was like 500,000 at one point for him to go to a city. So that's where that, that difference is. Uh,
1: a few months ago, when we first heard about those $100,000 a pop fundraisers for Bush's Super PAC. A lot of us thought, well, that's the ball game. He was the Republican frontrunner. Obviously not. But what have we learned from this? Or was it just an isolated incident in a Trumpified primary? Here's Spees again.
0: I think it's really hard to generalize from this election cycle because the Donald Trump phenomenon was so overwhelming that it meant that it you know that any strategic decisions were shifting because he was growing in strength and not doing it with a traditional campaign. So I, you know I just so I don't think there's transferable lessons really. if there's one thing that I personally based on my experience believe, and that's a little bit contrary to the philosophy that Right to Rise had is I think super PACs remain most effective when they're doing negative definition of opponents.
1: Hmm. Okay. So not I mean, as much pres- when they're amplifying the positive message.
0: Yes. I think it's very hard to set a positive message with a super PAC because you don't control what the candidate says and is doing on the presidential level, especially you have a traveling press corps and a group of people who are available to amplify the candidate's message. So you have a unique megaphone at the presidential level that you don't have on other levels, but that means that you're better off having your, positive paid messaging synchronized with what the candidates doing and thinking and with Right to Rise, for example, because we were independent of the campaign and didn't know what the candidate was thinking or what the next mess- you know, messaging point was going to be, it makes it more difficult to shape.
1: There are plenty of other hypotheticals and what-ifs. Would that $100 million have mattered in support of a different candidate? Or was this primary, as was written in so many postmortems, the end of the super PAC? In 2013, Spies told Politico that super PACs had become a necessity in a primary, not a luxury. It was indisputable, he said at the time, But now I wondered if he could possibly still think so after this unusual primary season. Given what we saw with the Donald Trump dynamic in this race, do you think that that is still true in most circumstances? And is this kind of just a rare exception or have you adjusted your view on this?
0: I think if you are a reality television star who has the ability to generate over $2 billion of free television coverage, you might not need a Super PAC supporting you, but in any other circumstance, (laughs) you would want one.
1: So where does this money actually go? We'll take a look next week on Trailhead.